Amen. All right, well, we're there in Ephesians chapter number four. This is, we are going on Wednesday nights through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This is our fourth week in chapter four, and this is the last week in chapter four, I promise. We'll move on to uh, chapter five uh, next time we are in the book of Ephesians. And, uh, you know, I, I just believe that if there's truths uh, for us to learn, that we should take the time to dissect it, and there's no need to rush through uh, the Bible uh, if, if there's things for us to learn. There's been a lot of things in this chapter that have been uh, good for us to learn and applicable to us. And uh, if you remember, uh, last week we covered uh, verses 11 through 16 of this chapter Tonight, we're going to cover 17 through 32. We'll finish this chapter, and we'll move on to chapter 5. And uh, in this chapter, what I'd like you to notice uh, towards the end, this last final passage we're going to deal with, there's this theme uh, about our walk or about our conversation, which is the Bible word for our lifestyle. There's this theme about the way we live our lives. And if you remember, we've been looking at this book, and the first three chapters were heavy on theology, very theological uh, teachings about predestination and all sorts of things like that. And now uh, Paul has shifted gears into more of a practical, application-driven uh, type things. And if you remember last week, we talked about the role of spiritual leadership in your life and how spiritual leadership is here to equip you and help you uh, to walk with God. Now in these verses, he talks about our lifestyle and he's talking about this is what, this is what uh, your Christian life should look like. This is what your life should be uh, like. Now, I want you to notice there in verse number uh, 17, just by way of introduction, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, the Bible says this, This I say therefore, and testifying the Lord, he says that ye henceforth, that word henceforth means from here on or from here forward. He says that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So notice that there is a theme there. He says, I'm going to teach you about not walking the way that Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Skip down to verse 22. We're going to dissect all these verses here in a minute, but I just want you to notice the theme. Verse 22, he says that you put off, and that's really the, the theme, and I'm going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. He says that you put off concerning the former conversation. And the word conversation is just, an, an, uh, in our King James Bible, it's using an older definition. It just means lifestyle or the way you live your life. It's the same idea that we saw in verse 17 as far as your walk, the way you act, the things you do. He says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. He said, look, you, uh, when you got saved, you were created a new creature, but yet there's an old man that had an old walk, that had an old lifestyle, that had an old way about him. And he said, that old man doesn't just go away when you get saved. And I hope you understand that. When you get saved, you say, oh, there's a new man. Yeah, but that old man's still there. You wake up with that old man every day. You live with that old man every day. And Paul's going to teach us about taking off that old man. He says that you put off. And I like the uh, analogy that he uses or the wording he uses because it's, it's very much like, uh, uh, like a piece of clothing, like a coat. He says you just need to take that coat off. He says that you put off concerning the old, uh, excuse me, the, concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is a, a, a corrupt according to deceitful lust, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Then he says in verse 24, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So there's this idea of the way we live our lives and the old walk versus the new walk, the old man versus the uh, new man. The old, he says, put off the old man and put on the new man. So notice, he begins with the old walk of unbelievers. And if you're taking notes, if you would like to get an outline for this passage, point number one is the old walk of unbelievers. Notice verse 17. He begins to explain about the old walk. And this has really been a theme in the book of Ephesians as well. Because if you remember earlier in the, in, the, in the book, he talked about the fact that the children of wrath, the children of disobedience, the unsaved, those are, that aren't believers, they are walking in the course of this world. Do you remember that? He said that course was set up by the prince of the power of the air. That the devil has basically set the agenda for the world. He's, he's laid out a course, and unbelievers, they're not bad people. They're not evil people. They're, they're, they're just not saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They just don't know any better. They just naturally get put on the course of the world. 
and they just act like unbelievers act, and they act like sinners act, and they just do what the world does, and so they end up having marriages like the world has marriages. They end up raising children the way that the world raises children. They end up living their lives the way the world lives their life, and the only problem with that is that it's a destructive lifestyle that the devil has set up for uh, unbelievers. So notice in verse 17, he says, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth, he says, he says, from here on now, you need to make a decision to walk not as other Gentiles walk. And you say, well, what's wrong with the way that other Gentiles walk? And what's wrong is that they walk, notice verse 17 there, the end of verse 17, in the vanity of their own mind. See, the, the unbelieving world and this, the world out there that is away from God and away from Christ, they're going to lead you. The way that unbelievers live their life is they live a vain life. They live in vanity. They live a life that is vain. And uh, Song of Solomon, excuse me, Ecclesiastes, Solomon would tell us that all of life is filled with vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, keep your place there in Ephesians 4.17. That's our text, obviously, for tonight. Go into the book of Psalms, if you would. Psalm 39. It's right in the center of your Bible. You have the book of Psalms, Psalm 39. The word vanity or vain, sometimes we don't... Uh, really understand the meanings of these words. When we think of someone uh, having vanity or vain, uh, we think of someone who's into themselves, and, and that's a proper way to, to, that's a proper definition, of course. We, you, you might look at someone and say, oh, they're shallow, they're very vain. The, the word vanity literally means empty. Uh, when Solomon says that all is vanity under the sun, he says it's vanity and vexation of spirit. The word vexation means frustration. And the Bible teaches that the world and the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their own mind, in the, uh, in the pride of life and just the, the self-life, but that leaves them empty and it leaves them just frustrated with life. Psalm 39, are you there? Look at verse 4. Notice what the psalmist said, Psalm 39, 4. The Bible says this, Lord, make me to know mine end. This is a, a prayer uh, to God. He says, Lord, make me to know mine end. This is someone thinking about the end of their life, someone thinking about how their life will end. They said, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days. I don't want to just consider the end of my life. I want to consider how much time I have with my life, the end of my life, and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. When you really consider how much time you have on this earth, you realize how weak and frail you really are. When you really consider the amount of time that you'll actually have on this earth to make an impact, to influence, to do anything in, in, in regards to eternity, you realize that we are but dust, that we are frail. He says that I may know how frail I am. Notice verse 5. Behold, thou has made my days as in hand breath. He says, look, the amount of time that I live on this earth, whether it's 70 years or 80 years or 100 years or whatever it might be, he says, it's like a hand breath. In regards to eternity. He says, Behold, thou hast made my days as in handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. And then he says this, and I think it's an, a super interesting uh, uh, statement or commentary about life here in the book of Psalms. He says, Verily every man, and I don't believe, I believe he's talking about unregenerate man, just not, not factoring in God and the Holy Spirit, but just man on his own. He says, Verily every man, at his best state. We're not talking about finding the worst guy on earth. We're not talking about finding the biggest loser just doing nothing with his life. You find just someone who's the best. I mean, just, I mean, aren't there nice people that aren't saved? I mean, sometimes it seems like unsaved people are nicer than saved people. You know, sometimes it seems like, you know, you get around some Mormons and it's like, man, that, I wish we had church members like these guys. You know what I mean? They don't lie to you. They don't steal. Uh, they don't say mean things to you. You know, uh, I mean, he, and here's what he's saying. He says, look, you, you find the, the most, the, the, the nicest, the most, you know, uh, uh, just stand up, unsaved person out there, just the nicest guy that we would all look at and say, that's a great guy, that's a nice guy. I mean, he, he's planting trees, uh, he's helping uh, with this charity and that charity, he, he's trying to do the best he can with his life. And here's what the psalmist says, he says, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. 
He says, look, an unsafe person just living their life, you find the best person doing the best they can, and altogether their life is just empty. He says, it's altogether vanity. Surely, notice verse 6, every man walketh in a vain show. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he says, you find the best guy out there, and surely every man walketh in a vain show. Isn't it human nature to just kind of do things just to kind of show face, to show people? Look, you need evidence of this? You ever heard of a thing called Facebook? You ever heard of a social media outlet called Instagram? You ever heard of, a, you know, you ever heard of social media? I mean, surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. What does that mean? He says, look, unsaved people get up every day, put energy and effort. We're talking about the good, the good ones. They put energy and effort into things they are disquieted in vain. What about the ones that help their community? If they die, look, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul? What about the good guys out there and they're trying to help with this and help with that and, and they've got it, they're in this community uh, organization and they're trying to help with this charity. He says, they're disquieted. They're disquieted, but in vain. He heapeth up riches, the Bible says. What about most, the most successful people out there? The richest people out there. The wealthiest people out there. He, 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 the Bible says, he heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Because you can't take it with you. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the, the life of unbelievers is a vain life. If you, look, no matter what you do, if you do everything you're supposed to do, everything right you're supposed to do, try to help everybody, and you die and go to hell, you lived an empty, an empty, and a useless life. You say, that's kind of harsh. It's the truth. And Paul, and Paul says, look, the unbelievers, they walk, go back, go back to Ephesians 4.17 if you would. He says, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord. He says, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk. You say, what's wrong with the way the other Gentiles walk? In the vanity of their minds. Because it's empty. Then he says, look, not only is their life empty, he says their life is alienated. Notice verse 18. Having the understanding darkened. And again, this is a, uh, a we, we dealt with this uh, in, in our Bible Doctrine series on Sunday night. The fact that unbelievers cannot understand the Bible. They cannot understand spiritual things. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. That's what he's saying. He says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Isaiah tells us that sin separates us from God. And unbelievers, they're separated from God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. He says, look, they live an empty life. They might be disquieted. They might put a lot of energy and empty effort, but it's emptiness. Solomon, who succeeded in every area that you could possibly succeed in, got to the end of his life and said, I hate my life. It's vanity and vexation of spirit. And then Paul tells us, not only is their life vanity, their life is alienated from God. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you're alienated from God, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, you live a hopeless life and you live a helpless life. Let me show it to you. You're there in Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 and look at verse 12. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Notice what he says, Ephesians 2.12, that at the time ye were without Christ. He's saying when you were not saved, when you were without Christ, being aliens, right? When you were alienated from the life of God. He says being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of the promise. He says having no hope and without God in this world. And he says, look, unbelievers, Paul's trying to tell, save people, he says, don't live your life like unsaved people. Now, he's saying this because of the fact that there are so many saved people who are trying to live like unsaved people. And Paul says, why would you want to live like an unsaved person? Don't you know that their life is just walking in the vanity of their own mind? Don't you understand that they are living alienated from the life that is in God and that leaves them hopeless? He says, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Go to Romans chapter 5 if you would. You're there in Ephesians. If you just head backwards, you've got the book of Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and then the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. Do me a favor, when you get to Romans, put a ribbon or a bookmark there uh, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. So just leave your place there in Romans chapter 5. Notice Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Romans 5, 6, the Bible says this, From when we were yet without strength. For when we were yet without strength. What does that mean? We were helpless. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that. He says, look, look, the world, they, they, he says, for scarcely. You know what that means? He says, uh, it's kind of rare, but maybe for a righteous man, one would die. Maybe I could kind of, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, it's scarcely, it's rare. But if a guy was just really righteous, then someone might be willing to die for them. And peradventure, that means perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. He says, but you know what makes God different? That God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. He says, while we were hopeless and helpless, while we could uh, give nothing and provide nothing. This is why work salvation theology is so misguided. We get this idea that, oh, we'll just give your life to Christ. You got nothing to give to Christ. He doesn't need anything from you. You are helpless. You were helpless. I was helpless and hopeless without God in this world. And he says, that's how unbelievers live. And honestly, I don't really know how unsaved. I, 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 I got saved at a very young age. I grew up in a Christian, uh, Christian home. I really don't know how unbelievers live their lives. I mean, because tragedy happens. Because things happen, we don't understand, and we don't they, don't they don't make sense, and things happen in life. And, and honestly, I mean, I, I, I can always by faith say, hey, all things work together for good to them that love God. I can always just by faith say, well, God has a plan, and God has a purpose, and God's own. I can read the story of Job, and I can read the story of Joseph, and I can say, you might be in the dungeon, and you might be in the prison, but God's working on the other side. God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't forsaken. God will be there for you. I don't know what unsaved people think honestly i don't know how you comfort unsaved people paul says why are you trying to live like them don't you know they're hopeless and helpless don't you know they're alienated from the life that is in god don't you know that they are alienated from the love and the compassion of christ don't you know that they're without hope and without god in this world then he says, if you'd keep your place there in Romans and go back to Ephesians 4. He says, unbelievers, you know, they, they live a life that is alienated. And he says, unbelievers, they live a life that's vain, it's empty. And then he says, unbelievers, they live a life of lasciviousness. Notice verse 19. He says, who being past feeling. And I don't have time to develop this, uh, but I, I believe this is a reference to uh, a reprobate, someone who becomes callous, someone who's pro- without the ability to feel. And you say, well, why would he say that when he's talking to unbelievers? Because reprobates only come from unbelievers. You never, you never go from being saved to a reprobate. You go from being unsaved to being a reprobate. And let me just say this, and, and I hope this, I don't have time to develop this, but the idea of being a reprobate is that you're rejected and you're without hope, and you're without the ability to be saved. And here's the honest truth, and I'm not saying that every person becomes a reprobate before they die, but when they die, guess what? They're all reprobates because the Bible says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Once you die, there's no hope. Once you die, you're rejected. Once you die, you can sit there at the judgment of the great white throne and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? Did we not cast out devils? Did we not do many wonderful works? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. So they, they, this is where it ends for every unbeliever. It ends down the road of no hope, no ability to be saved, rejected by God. And he says, who being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. The word lascivious is our word, we would use the word lust or desire, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And again, this is not just something in regards to a physical relationship between a man and a, and, and a woman, although you can definitely apply it there, but it's just a desire for life. And look, 
Honestly, isn't that the truth about unbelievers? Isn't that just kind of how they live their life? Go to 1 John chapter 2, if you would. If you start at the end of uh, at the book of Revelation and head backwards, you have the book of Jude. You've got 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. John 1 John chapter 2. The word is hedonistic. We do not only live in a heathenistic society. Heathenistic meaning they've rejected the God of the Bible. So they're what you and I would call heathens. But we also live in a hedonistic society. The idea that if it feels good, do it. And I mean, isn't that the world we live in? I mean, you can go out there, look, you can go out there and have somebody tell you, well, as long as you're not hurting anybody, as long as it's consensual, as long as you're not, you know, hurting anyone, if it feels good, do it. What they don't understand is that sin hurts everyone. The Bible says righteousness exalteth a nation. So guess what unrighteousness does? Well, look around. It's what it's done to our nation. And we live in a society that's a lascivious, it's just, they're just kind of, they're, they're, they're living empty lives, they're living hopeless lives, so what do they do? They just try to fill their lives with pleasure, lasciviousness, greediness. And look, isn't this what God already told us? 1 John 2.15, we, we know these verses, let's look at them. God, the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have it both ways. You can't love the world and love the Father. We learned about this already in Ephesians. They, it puts you, the love, being a friend of the world puts you at enmity with God. Then he says this, for all that is in the world. He says, here's why you can't have the love of the Father and the love of the world. You can't have both of them. He says, for all that is in the world. He said, this is all the world has to offer. You young people, you listen to me. You've got these grand ideas. When I turn 18 years old, I'm going to leave the house. And I'm, Look, you don't have to leave. I can tell you, everything the world has to offer you, it's all right here in verse 16. For all that is in the world, for all that is in the world, for all that is in the world, here's all the world has to offer. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. You say, well, that doesn't sound uh, too bad. Well, go ask our friend Solomon, who says, the eye is never full of seeing, and the ear is never full of hearing. Hey, your lust will never be satisfied, so you can go ahead and give yourself to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, but you'll never be satisfied. You'll end up vain, empty, vexation of spirit, frustrated. This is the life of unbelievers who eventually die and go to hell. And Paul's looking at this church at Ephesus. And I'm looking at this church in Sacramento and saying, why are you trying to live like them? What what is it exactly that they're offering you that's so great? He says they live vain lives and alienated lives and lascivious lives. He says they, 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 they live without hope and hopelessness. Their lusts are never fulfilled. And then they die and go to hell. And then Paul, he, he, does, he, he, he shifts gears, and he does a compare and contrast. Then he says, let me, let me tell you what the new man looks like. Look at verse 20, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20. He's talking about the unbelievers, right? And then, and then he says in Ephesians 4.20, he says, but ye have not so learned Christ. Here's what he's saying. If you're saved tonight, and you're living this empty hopeless, alienated, sorry life that the devil has set up for you, the course of this world. He says, you didn't learn that from Christ. He said, but you have not so learned Christ. He says, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's what he's saying. If you're saved and you've heard of Christ and you've been taught of Christ, he said, you can live a better life. See, Jesus did not just come to give you eternal life in regards to salvation. He also came to give you the abundant life that you can have right here, right now. He says, I'll save your soul and give you eternal life, but if you give me your life, your body, physically, I'll give you the abundant life. So in verse 22, Paul says this. He says that you put off concerning the former conversation. He says, why don't you take off that old lifestyle, the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And then he says, look, 
if you're going to, and he's talking to believers, right? This is perfect for us because we're believing church. He says, if you're going to transition from the way that the world lives to the way that Christians ought to live, not that Christians will live uh, because, look, you can be saved and frustrate the Holy Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit. It's even in this passage. But he's like, this is the life that God has given you. This is the victory God has given you. If you're going to live that life, you're going to have to realize a couple of things. First of all, it's going to require a change in your attitude. It's going to require a renewal in your attitude. He says, notice verse 22, that ye put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. He says, the old man is corrupt. And then he says in verse 23, he says, look, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, he says, look, if you're going to begin to walk, because look, verse 24, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. He says, if you're going to put off the old man and you're going to put on the new man, it's going to require a renewal of your mind. He says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, the new walk requires a new attitude. Go to Romans chapter 12, if you would. I ask you to keep your place in Romans. Just go back to Romans, if you would. Continue to keep your place there. Romans chapter 12. Please understand this. You say, I'd sure like to take off the old man and put on the new man. Well, here's step one. Change your attitude. Renew your attitude. Your attitude and the way you think needs to change. You grew up, right? We all grew up unsaved. We all grew up in this world being told to walk in the course of this world. You know, just move in together before you get married to get to know each other. Wrong 60%, you know, the vast majority of people who cohabitate end up divorced one year after marriage. How does that work? I don't, I think it's just God just saying, you reap what you sow. Oh, you know, just, just uh, uh, vaccinate your kids. Wrong. Put your kids in a public school, a government facility with government, no, wrong. I mean, we're just, we're just given this course of this world and and we're just told, just do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's like, God said, no, 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 no. The first step is you got to renew your mind. You got to renew your attitude. You're there in Romans 12, look at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. God says, I want your body. I want you, and I'm not asking for a dead sacrifice. I want a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then you say, Well, how do I do that, Paul? Here's how you do it. And be not conformed to this world. Don't conform yourself to the course of this world. Well, how do I stop doing that? Here's how you do it. But be, be transformed. Don't miss it. By the renewing of your mind. See, you people, people will, you know, attack our church and say, oh, you guys are a cult. That pastor is brainwashing you. And I always think to myself, well, you, your brain needs to be washed. <laughs> it, it's, it, he says, look, you need a renewing of your mind. You need a change in your attitude. And listen to me, please listen to me. Be very careful about getting advice from the world. Now, look, I, I believe, I believe Jesus said this and I believe it. I, you know, he said that the children of this world and their generation are wiser than the children of light. And I'm not one of these people who says there's nothing you can't learn from uh, unbelievers out there. And, and Jesus gave a parable and then he said, look, sometimes you can learn something from fall, you know, unsaved people. And, and look, I, I read books. And, uh, you know, uh, business books and best practices books. And I have a leadership class. I have the guys go through some of these books and things that are written by unsaved people. I don't think there's anything in the world wrong with learning some best practices things from unsaved people. I'm talking about when, it, when it's talking about time management. When it's talking about delegating. When it's talking about organizing. When, it's, when you're talking about just running a business, and this is a church, of course, but we try to run it professionally like a business. I think, you know, the children of this world are in their generations wiser than children of light. Why, why reinvent uh, the, the wheel if there's already people out there that have uh, learned how to organize and learn how to, how to uh, build uh, organizations and structures and systems to be able to motivate and mobilize. Hey, I'm all for that. I'll read books like that all day long. You know what I won't read from the world? About marriage. You know what I won't read from the world? Uh, child rearing. You know what I'm not going to read from the world? On how uh, teenagers should date. 
Hey, look, go, go ahead and, and read stuff from the world and learn from the world. You know, if you're going to go into some sort of business and some sort of uh, uh, area of, 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 of uh, business, then read those people and learn those people and get those people. But when it comes to how to live your life, hey, get you a King James Bible and get you a saved preacher and get you a Baptist preacher and learn from them how to raise your kids. I'll sit there and watch documentaries and movies and, and clips and, and read stuff from the world. On how to have a good marriage. Have you seen their divorce rates? Why would you want that? Well, Pastor, we got this book on child rearing. It was written by a psychologist. Look, just, just, go, just drive by a public high school around here someday when school gets out. I'm, I'm, look, we love those kids. We want to reach those kids. We want to reach those families. But watch those kids come out of school and tell me, if, is that what you want to produce? Because that's what they're producing. You can't even tell if it's male or female. They don't even want you to know if it's male or female. Black, angry, upset, depressed. Is that what you want? So why are you reading their books? So why are you learning from them? Look, best practices, go for it. How to write a to-do list? I'd read that book all day long. But how to have a good marriage? No, I'm going to stick to the Bible, thank you. How to raise my kids? I'm going to stick to the Word of God. We don't need the world's philosophies. We don't need the course of this world. They're failing. They're crazy. It's empty. It's lascivious. They're without hope and hope and helpless in this world. And Paul says, look, you need to get, you need to understand this. You need to get this. If you're going to put off the old man and put on the new man, you need to renew your mind. It's going to require a renewal in your attitude. But then he says this. Then he says this. Not only will it require a renewal in your attitude, he said it will also require a renewal in your actions. Then he begins to get real practical here, right into the, the nitty-gritty. And he says there in verse 25, Ephesians 4.25, he says, Wherefore, and I love the terminology, putting away, like taking a coat off. Like taking a coat off and folding it up and putting it away. He says, Wherefore, putting away. And then he begins, he gives, he gives us four things. And I don't think this is a, uh, you know, a just the, the all-inclusive list of these are the four things that it takes to be a good Christian. I, I don't think that at all. He just gives these four things. I'm not sure why he gives these four things. Maybe the church at Ephesus really needed it. Uh, I think it's going to apply to all of us. But he gives four things that you need to do, actions that you need to do if you're going to put off the old man and put on the new man. Because these are four things that the world does. And that believers should not do. Notice what he says. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Here's, here's thing number one. Wherefore putting away lying. I mean, is that, uh, oh, that's deep, Pastor. Hey, I'm just, I'm, we're just going through the book of Ephesians. Wherefore putting away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. He says, look, you need to renew your attitude, but then he says, you also need to renew your actions. You say, you say well, what do you mean, Paul? He says, hey, stop lying and be honest. He says, you want to be different than the world? Stop lying. You, you, want to, you want to stand out at work, men, gentlemen? Stop lying. Be honest. Be on-. He said, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Now, keep your place here in Ephesians 4. We're coming back to it, of course. Go to the book of John, if you would. John chapter 8. And I want to show you a theme that when Paul gives us these ideas, they're all connected to Satan somehow. And I'm going to show that to you as we move through this. If you, in John chapter 8, look at verse 44. If you kept your place in Romans and you go backwards, you have Acts, and then you have the book of John. If you start in Matthew, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 8, verse 44. This is a really interesting passage about Satan. At some point in our doctrinal series, we're going to do... Uh, Sunday night, the doctrine of Satan. And I'm sure we'll review this. John 8, 44, notice what he says. This is Jesus speaking. If you have a red letter edition Bible, these words are in red. He says, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do, right? Because, the, because all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And then I want you to notice these words. He says, and abode not in the truth. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, 
And from the beginning, he abode not in the truth. You say, well, why did he not abide in the truth? Here's why. Because there is no truth in him. Now, it's interesting that Jesus would say, in the devil, he abode not in the truth. He says, and in the devil, there is no truth in him. Then he says, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, meaning he's speaking from his own heart, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. He says, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. You say, why? For he is a liar. And the father of it. He invented lying. Satan invented lying. That's what he says. He's the father of lying, and he abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. Here's what's interesting. When you study Satan in the Bible, there's not a lot of passages where Satan is speaking. And the two most famous passages where Satan is speaking, where the devil is speaking, is the Garden of Eden and is the temptation of Christ. Here's what's really interesting. When Satan speaks in those two passages, which are the main passages where we hear him talk, he never tells a flat-out lie. But you know what he does? He twists the truth. In both instances, in the Garden of Eden and with Christ, he speaks the truth partially. And then Jesus turns around and says, there is no truth in him. You know what that tells us? That tells us that if you're not telling the complete truth, you're not telling the truth at all. See, the world says, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't lie. I just didn't say everything. No, th- you, then you lied. I, I, I just, you know, was a little deceived, de- de- uh, deceived a little bit. No, he says he abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. It's interesting because we see the devil give half truth, and then Jesus says, there is no truth in him. So here's what Paul is saying. Is this really complicated? You say, I'm going to learn how to live the Christian life. Okay, step one, stop lying. Be honest. Don't lie. He says, put away lying. Speak every man the truth. And by the way, by the way, just realize, just realize this, that lying is just not a flat-out lie looking someone in the eyes and just lying to them. You understand that? When, when, when you take an extra 15 minutes of lunch break, guys, and you're getting paid to be back at work at a certain time, and, and, well, nobody knows. You lied. That, that's what the unsafe people do, isn't it? That's what unsafe people do. They clock in late. They leave early. They get, I clock, clock me in. I'm running late. No, that's lying. You're getting paid for time you weren't there. And Paul says, hey, oh, how about this one? You buy something from the store, you use it, knowing full well you're going to return it. That's lying. That is dishonest. That is, a, you say, oh, I just need this tool. Then, then rent it. Then buy it and sell it. Then borrow it from someone. But to go to the store, purchase something, Full well knowing, you're just going to use it one time and then return it. That's what the world does. Some of you did that with your wedding dress or something. I don't know. That's lying. So just realize that lying is not just looking someone in the eye, flat out lying. It's interesting to me that Satan never just flat out lied in the Bible. He told half truths. He twisted things. He just changed things a little bit. And then Jesus comes along and says, he abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Then Paul says this. He says, look, you want to put on the new man? Stop lying. (laughs) Stop lying. Be honest. Then he says this. Go back to Ephesians 4. He says in verse 26, notice, he says, be ye angry and sin not. You know that you can be angry and sin and not sin? Well, we know that's true because the Bible tells us Jesus was angry at times, and he never sinned. But you're not Jesus, and I'm not either. And the vast majority of time that we get angry, we sin. And Paul says, hey, be ye angry and sin not. He says, be ye angry and sin not. So he says, look, you want to walk? You want to walk and the new man that God has called you to walk? Well, he says, number one, don't lie and be honest. Then number two, he says, control your temper. I mean, he says, be angry. He says, there's nothing wrong with being angry. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes things happen and they anger us. But control that enough so that you don't sin. Be angry and sin not. Then he says this, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. I used to have a pastor that would say, get glad in the same shoes you got mad in. 
Don't go to bed angry with your spouse. He says, let not the wrath, he says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You say, why? Well, notice verse 27, neither give place to the devil. When we do not control our temper, you know what we are allowing? We're allowing the devil, the Bible says. We're giving place to the devil to use us. So it's interesting. He says, don't lie, which is something that the devil's known for. Then he says, don't get angry or don't lose control of your anger. And then he says, because you'll give place to the devil. Look, the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 32, you don't have to turn there. He that is slow to anger is better than, a, than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. So he says, number one, don't lie and be honest. He says, number two, control your temper. Then he says, number three, notice Ephesians 4 and verse 28. He says, let him that stole steal no more. He says, don't steal and work hard. Let him that stole and steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he might give to him that needed. He says, look, don't steal. Don't steal and work hard. And look, the world, they, they, think, they, they, they think, oh, you know, I just took that, or it's no big deal. Again, if you are getting paid for time, you actually didn't work, that's stealing. He says, look, let him that stole steal no more. So that's what you used to do. You used to steal. You used to, you know, it's tax season, right? You used to put that credit, you know, that Social Security of your niece or whatever to get that tax credit. Look, that's stealing. If, if you're, they're not actually living with you, you're stealing. He says, let him that stole steal no more. He says, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. He says, don't steal and work hard. You say, how's that connected to the devil? Well, think about this. Jesus said, Jesus said that the thief, referring to the devil, he said, the thief cometh forth to steal and to kill and to destroy. You know, the devil's known for stealing, and he says, look, don't lose your temper because you give place to the devil. Don't steal because that's what the devil does with your life. He wants to steal your life. He says, don't lie because that's what the devil does. Notice verse 29. It's interesting because he says, don't, here's what he said, don't lie and be honest. Then he said, control your temper. Then he said, don't steal and work hard. And then he gives us the last one. He says, control your tongue. Two don'ts and two controls. Don't lie and be honest. Control your temper. Don't steal and work hard. And then he says, control your tongue. Ephesians 4 and verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. You've heard me say this before. I've said it many times. I preached an entire sermon out of this one verse, Ephesians 4.29, and this was my outline. I've taught it to you. I've, we, my wife and I tried to teach it to our children. Before you allow words to come out of your mouth, some of you already know what I'm going to say. Before you allow words to come out of your mouth, you say, why are you saying it again? Because some of you need to review it. Before you allow words to come out of your mouth, at least before you allow words to come out of your mouth here, at least before you give me your commentary or your comments or your thoughts on my sermon, ask yourself these three questions. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And, and don't allow the words to come out of your mouth if you can't answer yes to all three. Now look, all of those are found in this one verse. Notice what it says. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Is it true? If it's corrupt... It's not pure. It's, it's unpure. It's not true. He says, look, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So you got to ask yourself this question. Before you allow something to come out of your mouth, ask yourself, is it true? Before you call someone and you're going to start gossiping, well, let me tell you what I heard. Let me tell you what I saw. You know, ask yourself, is it true? Is it even true? You know how gossip can ruin people's lives? And you can just spread rumors out there and, and, and oh, well, it turns out it wasn't true. Yeah, but now you've hurt that person. He says, is it, he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Is it true? He says, but that which is good to the use of edifying, is it necessary? Oh, no, it's true. I, I double-checked it's true. Okay, but the, is it necessary? Is what, is what you're about to say going to edify, encourage, build anybody else up? Well, no. Well, then, then why are you talking about it? He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Is it true? 
But that which is good to the use of edifying, is it necessary? Is what you're about to say necessary? Is it going to help somebody, encourage somebody, edify somebody? Then he says this, that it may minister grace. Is it kind? Is it kind? Unto the hearers. Look, you, you, if, if, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, you'll, you'll, you'll have a better marriage. Your kids will like you more. You'll probably get a promotion at work if you just learn to shut your mouth unless you can answer these questions. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Yeah. Is it true? You'll have less drama, less tension, less friction. Your neighbors will start liking you. Your family. See, you think your family doesn't like you because you're so holy. Okay, Job. No, I think they don't like you because you're a jerk. I think they don't like you because you just spew out your mouth. Do you need to tell them that? Is it necessary for you to say that? Is it true? Are you saying it in a kind way? Well, if you're not, then maybe you should not allow it to come out of your mouth. And here's what Paul said. Paul says this. If you want to live the life of the new... Yes, I have. This is, this is more complicated than I thought. I thought it was going to be like easier than that. Really? Don't lie. Don't steal. Control your temper. Control your tongue. He says, put on the new man. Colossians 4, 6, you don't have to turn there. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Ephesians 4, 30, the the very next verse. We often quote Ephesians 4, 30 out of its context, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. But when you realize that the context of that verse is verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearer. And then he says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. You say, what do those two things have to do with each other? And here's what it has to do with each other, that it grieves the Holy Spirit of God when you hurt other people with your words. So he says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. You say, well, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Then ask yourself this before you open your mouth. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Ask yourself this before you post this somewhere, email this somewhere, uh, send this somewhere. Is it true? Oh, yeah, it's true. Okay, well, is it kind? You said that it may minister grace. Oh, is it necessary? To the use of edifying. He said, otherwise you'll grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Then in verses 31 and 32, and we're, we'll finish up here. I've got four minutes. In verses 31 and 32, he just kind of gives this final conclusion, this final synopsis. He goes back to the, the unsaved people, right? He says, verse 31, here's kind of like, here, if, if you just want like a life verse, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church where, you know, we were, we were taught to have a life verse, and it, I think it's a good concept. We, I, we don't really talk about it a lot, but, you know, you're, you're told to have a life verse, right? This is like a, your life first, like this is something that encourages you, something you like. Well, look, for unbelievers, Ephesians 4.31, if they were honest, that's their life first. And now he's telling you to not do this. But this is how unbelievers live their life. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. I mean, does that sound like a life you want to live? Does that sound like someone you want to be? Does that sound like someone you want to marry? When you go on those dating sites, and I'm not advising it, I'm just saying, when you go on those dating sites, is, this, is somebody, you, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm bitter, uh, wrathful, I'm real angry, clamor, I'm not even sure what that means, but I'm sure I'm that, and evil speaking. I mean, is that, is that how you want? Because here's the thing, whenever we think of people, whenever we think of people, do you know that we were created to communicate in words? Right? That's why God gave us his word. That's how we're created to communicate in words. You know that whenever you think of people, what you think of is words? Hey, Dad, do you know that your kids, for the rest of their adult lives, whenever they think, whether they ever communicate this to you or not, whenever they think of you, there's going to be certain words that are going to come to their mind. Do you really want it to be short-tempered? I, I, can't, I just have to, like, it's like, I have to be real careful, and it's like, I have to tiptoe because he just... Is that how you want to be remembered? Well, you know, I, I love my mom, but she, man, she was bitter. Is that, is that what you want people to think of you? So Paul, Paul says, look, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. He says, be put away. So you don't, you don't want that from you with all malice. He says, here's what you want. And be kind one to another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Doesn't that sound a lot better? Even as God, for Christ's sake, 
hath forgiven you. He says, look, here's how you want to be remembered. You want to be remembered. You want people to say of you, man, she was kind. He was kind. I'll tell you, my dad, he wasn't perfect. He had a tender heart for us. He, I, I, I knew he loved us. You know, I, I made a lot of mistakes, but they were forgiving. You know what I really like about my employer? He's, he's, he's forgiving. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So Paul, Paul says this. He says, he says, put away. He says, put off. He says, take it out. He, he uses the terminology of clothing. He says, it's like taking a coat off. He said, put it off. And then he says, put it back on. He says, put on the new man. Go to Colossians 3 and verse 12. We're going to finish right here. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 12. Notice the terminology. Colossians 3 and verse 12. He says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Doesn't sound like we just read in Ephesians. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man uh, quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, uh, so also do ye. Notice verse 14. And above, and above all these things, he says, put on charity with the bond of perfectness. He said, put on. Notice verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercy, kindness, humbleness, of mind, meekness, long-suffering. He says, put it on. And, and, and look, Here's the honest truth. And I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm, I'm actually trying to help you. He, said, he, he uses this rule. He says, look, it's like putting a coat off and putting it away and grabbing another coat and putting it on. You say, I, I have a short temper with my kids. Okay, take that coat off and pick up the coat of long suffering and put that on. I, 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 I'm real bitter. Look, some of you, you've gone through things, and I'm not minimizing what you've gone through. If you stood up here and we gave you the mic and you told your story, we would all be with you and we'd all agree with you. But listen, you just got to take it off. Is it that simple? It's really just that simple. It's really, the, you say, I have a, yeah, I'm a habitual liar. I'm always lying. What do I do? Stop lying. It's really just that simple. Uh, I've got one of those, you know, weird things with my head. Or I'm, I'm a klepto. I just keep stealing stuff. What, what do I do? Stop stealing. It, it, it's really, it, honestly, it's just that. It's that easy. I, I, I got a temper. Stop it. I, 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 I like to gossip. Stop doing it. Just put it off. Put on the new man. See, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved yourself into. So put it off and put on the new man. And you'll find, you'll find that your life will be different than that of unbelievers. It will not be empty, but it will be rich with purpose. It will not be just lustful desires that never fulfill, but you'll find fulfillment in Christ that you won't live helpless and hopeless in this world. You'll actually live hopeful and helped when you need it. So put it off and put on the new man. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this, this book, just the Apostle Paul, just breaking down the Christian life for us. And Lord, I, I realize that it is difficult. Obviously, if it was easy to live the things that Paul's telling us here, we'd all be doing it. It is, it is difficult. And the flesh is difficult. But we can walk in the Spirit. We can be strengthened in the Spirit. Lord, I, I just pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to put off the old man and put on the new man. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.